This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we circle back to a question we asked a few episodes ago. Did Paul experience a conversion? Was it a repentance or was it something else entirely? That's right. We did that. So a few episodes ago, we had this big conversation about Paul. We were reading his story in Acts chapter 9. We always call this Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. And and I pushed really hard to say, I don't think that's accurate. I don't think it's even close to accurate. Paul doesn't change teams. He doesn't change religions. He doesn't change gods. He doesn't change faiths. All he does is correct his thinking about that God, about his faith. He doesn't stop being Jewish. That That's going to be a piece that most people are going to, some anyway, are going to want to push back on and be like, well, wait a minute. Well... He starts following Jesus. So, and that's what session four is all about, kind of pulling apart this whole Judaism and Jesus thing and figuring out how those two things go together. But a, a, just a very baseline understanding. Like, I don't think we could we could look at the story of Saul's experience and call it a true conversion. That was episode 138, by the way. Episode 138. Unclean sheets. Unclean sheets. We're gonna, are we going to link that the in the show notes? Yeah, we'll link it. Okay. Most of the episode was about Peter, but we did briefly touch on right. Saul's quote-unquote conversion and said we'd come back to it. So here we are. That's right. And all of you that love resolutions, you've been hanging there for episodes going, did they forget about that? And the answer is no. I'm here to give you what you desire. Resolution. So uh, did Saul change teams and join something new, or did Paul revise his thinking and align his service to a proper understanding of what the king was doing in the world? So uh, I think it'd be helpful if we go back and uh, start where we... Can we go back and review that story, Brent? Do you have it in Acts chapter 9? Yeah. Okay. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him... Okay, I'm going to stop you, Brent. We're going to go through this. I I want you to slow down here because I want us to listen to the details of this. This is the this is the first story. This is where we're actually told about his experience in scripture by Luke the author of Acts or the author of Acts whatever you want to do with that. Like this is this is the master story. So go ahead and start over Brent and and I want us to listen to the details. Listen listen very specifically to what happens and what doesn't happen, what's said and what's not said. Go ahead. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. All right. So we're asking this question about, is this experience we just read about, is it a conversion, repentance, something else? I think the question gets even better, and we probably have an even better perspective if we think about what is Saul's understanding? How did Saul experience that day? And when Saul talks about that day, how does he talk about it? And luckily, he does talk about that day on the Damascus Road more than once. Um, And so we can actually go and we can see how, uh, how Paul... Uh, talks about it. He mentions his testimony. He talks about it with Agrippa. He talks about it in Galatians. We're going to look at both of those cases today. 
But uh, unfortunately, Brent, his testimony, particularly in front of Agrippa, we're going to look at first. It's our Acts passage. It's going to be kind of how we wrap up our the content of the book of Acts, kind of the tail end, the closing of Acts here. His his testimony in Acts, it, make, it makes us even, even worse, this whole problem even worse. It seems that Saul has a horrible memory of this event, and it seems like he has embellished the story quite a bit. The main testimony uh, that I want to look at here comes out of Acts 26. He's going to share his story with Agrippa. And so, Paul, how about you read this? And I want us, again, to pay attention. You don't have to read it as slowly. You just referred to me as Paul, which I would like to set back aside. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, after spending enough time with you, Mr. Brent Billings, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, oh, boy. (laughs) <laughs> we're, we're treading on some thin ice over here. Like I said, I'd like to set that name aside <laughs> and revert back to my original name. Of Saul? No. Of Brent. Yes. Well, sorry. Got all wound up in my text here. I, so, will, I will read for you. Acts so Br- 26. How about that? <laughs> how about we listen to how he tells the story? And I want us to note uh, how how different his details are when he tells the story. Like, is he even remembering the same event? Like, go ahead. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic... Ah! I hate that. <laughs> the foot, translators. The footnote does say, or Hebrew. Is that in the NIV? Yeah. Good NIV. That is totally an arbitrary call on behalf of the translators, mm-hmm. but yes, it should be Hebrew. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. All right. So there's his testimony in Acts 26. And apparently Paul can't remember the details. Um, and some of these things may seem like minor details as we like, who cares, Marty? Like he, he, he reworded that. No, he did more than reword that. We have to consider whether they're really minor, harmless details or whether Paul has a faulty memory or whether he's doing this on purpose. Remember, Brent, we're not dealing with just anybody here. Who are we dealing with here? A student of Gamaliel, Gamaliel, like one of the greatest teachers in all Judaism. So let's outline the details that Paul has. He seems to have changed here. Paul seems to embellish, number one, the radiance of the light and the way it engulfed him and his companions. You're like, okay, so he embellished? Okay, who cares? No, 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 no. He goes out of his way to add a lot of specific details about how, like we're just told that there was a light in the Acts 9 story. But this one is a light, brilliant and radiant as the sun. Yeah, the original passage says a light from heaven flashed around him. But then in Acts 26, he says... uh, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. All right. That's a lot of extra words there. And you're like, oh, who cares? Okay, hold on. Paul adds to the dialogue what he hears from God. The phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, is completely absent from the original story and seems to be an arbitrary addition by Paul. Okay. Number three. Paul continues to add to God's conversation by saying that God told him to stand on his feet 
when that instruction is completely absent in the story. And we're like, okay, well, was he on, the, on his knees, on his feet? Who, could, who really cares? No, no, no. When Paul says God said something, this is important. Like, these aren't details that typically would be like, oh, who cares? It doesn't matter. No, this matters. And if that wasn't enough, number four, Paul adds the entire conversation within his testimony about God rescuing him and sending him to his own people, bringing them from darkness to light, etc. That they're going to be stubborn, that they're going to resist him, that it's going to be very difficult and dangerous work, but he's being sent to this people. That was not in Acts 9. Now, a, a typical apologetic, uh, uh, apologetics person an apologist is the word I'm looking for there, uh, would just say, well, God really did say that, and Luke just didn't include it in the Acts 9 story, but Paul's letting us in on the details. That we're and that's, that's perfectly possible, but it wasn't in Acts 9, and I don't want to think like a Western apologist. I want to think like an Eastern Jew, which means I'm going to be asking questions like, what is going on here? Is Paul a, a, a liar, liar, pants on fire, Paul? Or... Is there, what, what are some of our other options here, Brent? Maybe there's something in the text. It's in the text, ladies and gentlemen. Well, our first clue might be the whole bit about the goads. Let's go back to that whole, it's hard for you to kick against the goads line, right? Okay. For those who may not know, a goad, I didn't know. I even grew up in rural southern Idaho. I didn't know what a goad was. A goad is a cattle prod. Um, it's something that they use to kind of poke at the hind quarters of cattle to get them moving or other livestock. To kick against the goads would be an expression of fighting against where God is trying to lead you. In Jewish thought, the idea of kicking against the goads is brought up commonly in the conversation surrounding one prophet. There's a prophet in Jewish history, Brent, who kicked against the goads. In fact, in session two, we said he was the only prophet who acted like this. It's the wor- He's the worst prophet of all prophetic history. Who is it? I'm guessing it's Ezekiel. No. No? No. Oh. Well, Ezekiel did everything that God told him to do. Well, he, Ezekiel is like, my next to... passage, so I figured that was it. Well, you can't go there. No, no, no. <laughs> Who's the prophet that didn't do what God asked? Like, every prophet, God sends him to do something, and they might not like it, but they go do it. But one prophet was like, heck no. Jonah. Jonah was the only prophet in the Tanakh not directly obedient to God's call. He was the prophet in Jewish tradition routinely that gets told he kicked against the goads. So could it be that Paul is saying, well, I was Jonah. I was being Jonah. Well, consider this, Brent Billings. Jonah spent how long in the belly of a fish? Three days. Fish are covered in what? Scales. Scales. And if you were inside a fish, what kind of like experience would you have. What would you experience for three days? It'd be very dark. It'd be very dark. You would even consider it maybe blind? Effective blindness, yes. Okay, well, Saul was blind for how many days, Brent? Three days. And when it was done, we were told that what fell from his eyes? Scales. Interesting. So this idea might lead us to, now we're, now we're starting to cook with gas near. We're like, oh, okay, maybe this stuff is in the text. Maybe Paul's adding this stuff because he's actually trying to say something underneath the story. Like he's doing this on purpose. So we might look at, you said you had a passage from where? Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1. Go ahead, and, go ahead and read me Ezekiel 1, and I might stop you as you read to point out some things. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. All right, now, Brent, this is the calling. Uh, this is the story of where Ezekiel gets his calling. Like, he gets the vision. God says, I have a job for you. This is his commissioning. This is his calling passage. Go ahead. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what happened to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire. 
and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. Now, does that start to mimic what we heard Paul say in his story? Definitely. Definitely starts to sound a whole lot more like Ezekiel 1 than it did Acts 9, but go ahead and keep reading. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Okay, that's more of what Paul says. Ding, ding, ding. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. Ah, there's that reference. Stand up on your feet. Totally absent in Acts 9, and totally present in Ezekiel 1. Stand up on your feet, God tells Ezekiel. Go ahead. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Now listen to the content of what he's going to say here in his calling. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now, does that feel like the call of Saul that God gives him to go to both his Jewish brethren and the Gentiles? Kind of feels that way. Yeah. yeah. All right, so it might feel like a stretch, but to have all of those varied phrases and embellishments pulled straight from the same passage in Ezekiel seems to be far too much of a coincidence. Furthermore, Jonah was sent on behalf of the Gentiles, and Ezekiel is going to encounter the pushback of his own people. You still might feel like we're stretching it here, so let's just keep pushing on here. Let's consider that Paul gives us another brief testimony in the opening of Galatians. Go ahead and read us his little testimony in Galatians, Brent. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. All right. Now, in this passage, there's no stretch going on in this connection. No stretch required. Any Jew who heard the phrase, set me apart from my mother's womb, is immediately going to think of the prophets. Consider this passage from Jeremiah. You got a uh, passage from Jeremiah here, Jeremiah 1, which is also Jeremiah's calling. So we have Jonah's calling, we have Ezekiel's calling, and now we have Jeremiah's calling. Interesting. I wonder if Paul sees his experience. Go ahead, Brent. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So how close to that calling was that to the content of the Ezekiel calling, Brent Billings? To Ezekiel? Yeah, um, not like the details of what happened, but like the calling itself, like what God is calling him to do. Sure, yeah. I mean... Very similar, right? Yeah. I'm sending you to this people. Do not be afraid of them. Right. Or what they're going to do to you, because I will protect you. I will rescue you. All right? What about... Uh, let's go to Isaiah. Let's see. What do we got? Isaiah 40... What verse we got? 49? 40, chapter 49? 49, starting in verse 5. All right. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, 
It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is like the job description of what Paul's ministry will look like. This is it. I believe it becomes clear at this point how Paul understood his calling that day on the road to Damascus. He certainly did not see it as a conversion. And I would argue he associated that day with something much different than even repentance, although I don't think he would deny that repentance took place that day. He often says, I'm the chief of all sinners. I, was, I think he would totally say, of course I repented that day. But when he thinks back to that day, he doesn't see it as conversion. And I don't even think his main first thought is repentance. Paul saw his experience as something akin to the calling of Jonah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. Like Jonah was called to the Gentiles, so he would be called to bring repentance to the nations. As Ezekiel was called to confront the stubborn people of God, so was he. As Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah would announce light to a world of darkness, Paul would join the rank of prophets who were called by God to remind his people of their calling to be a kingdom of priests and a light to the Gentiles. Paul saw that day as more than repentance and totally different than conversion. Paul saw that day as his prophetic calling, the day that he was called to be a prophet. And I think it's going to help us interpret the story correctly if we see it the same way that Paul did. Because from this, we just start flippantly talking about conversion, all kinds of weird, wacky theology about Jews show up, replacement theology ends up coming out of some of these wacky foundations. It's important to get these things, to think these things, to think critically about these things and think these things through and ask ourselves, well, was Paul's story? How does Paul tell his story? Apparently inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell it that way. Why does he change the details? And I think now, because of session three and the time we spent there and Jewish hermeneutics, we now know that we're looking for that remez. We're looking for the fact that it's going to be found where, Brent? In the text. In the text. And once we've learned to think that way, we realize Paul's not an idiot. Paul's not embellishing. Paul's not having a shaky memory. Paul's telling these things on purpose for a reason because he's owning his own story and he's saying, I'll tell you what happened that day on the road to Damascus. I was running like Jonah, and I was called like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah because I had a job to do. God had a job for me, and I'm here to do that job. So is this context that Agrippa would have understand? That is a really good question because King Agrippa's not—he might, but there's a really low probability that Agrippa catches any of these references. So you got two options. Either there's a bunch of Jews hanging out with Paul and he's doing that purely for their benefit. Or, and I'm going to leave this unresolved. <laughs> I'm going to leave this passage, this this episode unresolved. But this one is Brent Billings' fault, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's his question. There might be something else going, because that is what we're going to see all the apostles do throughout session four. And by the time we close up session four in the book of Revelation, you're going to now see this happen with with apostle after apostle after apostle. They believe that there is power in putting the text into context, even when the audience isn't even going to realize it, because most of our listeners have never even caught any of this stuff. Nobody ever connected that to Jeremiah or Isaiah. Not nobody, nobody, but very, very few of us. I never did until somebody connected the dots for me. Somebody taught me how to think from a Jewish perspective. All of a sudden, I'm reading these stories differently. 
So it's not because the audience understands it, but because they believe that if they take God's words and put his words into their own context, that God's words have something very fascinating and a power that their own logic and reason and words do not. If they can put scripture to work, if they can let scripture go in their writing out of their mouth, those words have the possibility to do things that their words, their own words simply cannot. We'll talk about a lot more of that in session four. Uh, that wasn't quite as unresolved as I thought I might leave it. And if you really want to study that, you got to come with me to Turkey um, because we will study this in Turkey. And and I will try to just drill this and hammer this home over and over and over again to show you how committed to this practice. The, this, this isn't just Paul. This is not just Paul in Acts 26 doing this. All of your apostles are going to do this over and over and over again in their writings and in their teachings. So it becomes a very important principle. So I'm glad you asked that question. Wait, we can plant some seeds. Uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, love the questions. Love the questions, even if you don't answer them fully. Um, is that it for this episode? That's it for this episode. Uh, nice, nice short, just over 20 minutes. Beautiful. All right. Well, if you uh, have any questions, you can find us on Twitter at Marty Solomon and EIBCB. Uh, all the details about the show are at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Uh, be sure to sign up for the Baymont Messenger if you want to uh, be informed of when the next turkey trip is happening. We'll, we'll let you know through uh, the Baymont Messenger. So sign up there. And uh, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.